morning. If you are a guest this morning, I am not the pastor. Uh, I'm just some guy that was walking down the street and the pastor asked if I was available and I said, sure. Um, no, uh, my name is John Ravel and I'm a full-time chaplain for police and first responders in the area and uh, Debbie and I have uh, been plugging in to Calvary for about three years now and are very grateful for this church, for the pastor, the leadership, and for the opportunity to share on uh, Sunday mornings from time to time. So it's good to see you this morning. If you are a guest again, I would encourage you to take note in the bulletin. There is a code there, and please let the church know of your visit here. I promise you, they will not come knocking on your door this afternoon with a gift bag and wanting to know a full history and background. Uh, but it would be good to, uh, to be able to connect and let them know of your, your visit here this morning. And before we get into uh, the passage this morning, obviously uh, the Supreme Court ruling this past week uh, is huge on so many different levels. Uh, it is going to be a catastrophic shift for some people. Now, I suspect that many, if not most, in our congregation are celebrating right now what happened. But just a word of encouragement. There may be some in the fellowship who aren't as excited. There may be some who are concerned and troubled. Uh, some who may not have the same background and context uh, for all of this. And even if everybody in the church were 100% unified behind the ruling of the Supreme Court, we all know people and work with people and have family members who are distraught right now. So, yes, the preservation of life is something worth celebrating. At the same time, we as God's children, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to show grace and compassion and humility with those who disagree with us. And so, uh, as we rejoice in what, uh, from all outlooks, is a perspective, is a step in the right direction, I still would encourage us to be mindful of the people around us and to reflect the Lord's love and compassion and mercy uh, in the way we discuss the issue and the way we treat them. And so before we get into this morning's passage, why don't we pause and ask the Lord to bless our time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you are doing. And in the course of history, it's obvious that you've had your hand on it. You have uh, directed nations and governments. And we trust that you uh, have your hand and have purposes for our nation. We pray right now, Father, that you would move even more. Please grant our nation repentance and bring us back to a recognition of your supreme authority and the goodness of your commands and your directives. We ask that you'd use us as instruments, displaying grace and mercy and compassion and love, but use us as your instruments to reflect you in a, an accurate way, but also to, uh, to effectively communicate who you are in your love and your concern. Father, we ask that you would bring our nation to where it reaches a point where it is following your directives, your design, and is pleasing to you. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, you, in your grace and mercy, have been so good to share with us what you want us to know in written form. We praise you for the living word, Jesus Christ, but we also praise you for the written word. We thank you for uh, what we have seen and are seeing in the, the book of 1 John and we'll see in 2 and 3 John. Father, we ask that you would work this morning in all of our hearts, including me. Father, accomplish your purposes despite my weaknesses because of your love and your power and the power of your word. We open our hearts and our minds to you this morning right now and ask that you would work and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it just me? Or have you gotten the sense that truth in our culture is optional? 
that it is a commodity that can be used if it's to one's advantage, but ignored and discarded if it hinders the outcome or the objective. We're increasingly a nation that is focused on outcomes. We have an objective, we have certain outcomes we want to obtain, and we utilize whatever's necessary to reach those objectives and, and see those outcomes. And principle sometimes is a victim that's cast away on the side, on the side of the road. True confession. Confession is always good in a worship service, especially before a sermon. But don't judge me, okay? Debbie and I have become fans of the television series Stranger Things. I know, I know, some of you are shocked and aghast, and, and you can fire me if you need to. Oh, wait, you can't. But we have enjoyed the show, and I don't say that it is, is without its problems, but one of the things we, we saw the most current season, we thought, let's go back and re refresh, and so we're back on season one. And one of the things that I commented to Debbie the other night was, these kids, adolescents and pre-adolescents, their MO, their standard mode of operation is lying to their parents. Telling the truth to their parents is a rare exception and only happens when they're forced into a scenario where they can't deny it. Otherwise, it's natural to just lie. And we see it in politics as well, don't we? From a, from a, a young age, I heard the phrase, how can you tell if a politician is lying? If his lips are moving, right. Or hers. But that's the world, isn't it? That's the world we live in. That is the nature of darkness, and there's no getting around it. We live in the darkness. We are uh, ambassadors of God's light that's taking, supposed to take it into the darkness. And the darkness around us has no real regard for truth unless it serves their purposes. What about in the church? You know, it's one thing to say, okay, that's the way people who are not redeemed, we don't expect unredeemed people to embrace the values of redemption. That's uh, in, in Ephesians, Paul said that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So you don't expect spiritually dead people to act as if they are spiritually alive. So that's okay, but what about when that comes into the community of faith, Christianity? It's easy to let those incremental baby steps take root where, you know, it's only a white lie, as if there were such a thing. The other day I was making a transaction that dealt with some documents on a state level and had a friend uh, helping me, uh, who's a Christian, make the transition. And in the process, we found that one of my documents uh, had an old address, and it was supposed to have been changed three years ago after moving, and I was only had 48 hours to make that change. And I thought, oh my gosh, he said, okay, well, here's a number, call, and tell them that you're in the process of moving right now. And he said, it's not really a lie. And I looked at him and I said, Yes, it is. And I'm preaching about truth this coming Sunday morning. So <laughs> that doesn't work. It's easy for the enemy to gradually and carefully and slightly work his way into the hearts and minds of the redeemed to allow deception or to even participate in deception. And that's one of the key points that John has in writing uh, these, what some have called uh, these, uh, these snapshots or these postcards, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And twice in the book of John, go ahead and put the passage up, uh, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Little children, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, let no one deceive you. As Pastor mentioned last week, there were a group of people who had been a part of the fellowship at one point, and it looks like they had removed themselves, but they were 
preaching and teaching false doctrines, things that were not true. False doctrines about the nature of Jesus Christ and his deity, false doctrines about the way we as followers of Christ can live. And if you go back and read the whole Gospel of John in combination with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you see that this is very much at the forefront of John's mind as he's trying to teach followers of Jesus Christ the whole issue of deception and how to deal with deception. So first, in this whole consideration, we're going to ask the question, why? Three questions, why? Why is this important to God? Second, what? What are some things that we are supposed to address? And third, how? What has God provided so that we can address these things? So first, the question why? Why would God focus on this? Why would John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, place time and energy on this topic? It's because of this. Truth is a big deal to God. Truth is really important to God. In the passage uh, that we have seen uh, early on, uh, a couple of weeks ago, First uh, John uh, 1, verse 5, it says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God, in his holiness, in his perfectionness, is the epitome, the ultimate, in fact, the source of true light. And that being the case, there is zero darkness in God. Now, this shouldn't surprise you that God has a big concern about truth. Many of us who grew up in the church memorized the Ten Commandments. And the Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not lie. So early on in God's formation of the nation of Israel, Truth was central, but John himself, and you don't, we're not going to put all these passages up, but I, go ahead and write these down, uh, jot down these passages, and, and your assignment is to reflect on them later. John in his gospel, and then in 1 John, makes these statements about John, and then quotes Jesus, uh, about Jesus, and then quotes Jesus. In him was life, this is John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life is the light of men. Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. In John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in John 3, 19 through uh, 21, just listen as I read. This is Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. This is after the uh, the well-known passage, uh, uh, John 3:16, for God so loved the world. But he goes on in, in verse 19, he says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, I'm going to do something I've not done in a while. I'm going to actually open a hard copy of the Bible. Uh, and what is it the pastor says? Grab your Bible and bring a bulletin or... Uh, no, it's... Bring your Bible, grab a bulletin. I can't do it with the same class and style as the pastor, but... Uh, whatever version, whether it's hard copy or uh, it's electronic... Uh, go ahead and open up to, to 1 John. But in 1 John verse 1, verse 6, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. There is a consistent pattern in John's writing especially, but in, in all of the Bible, of truth being equated with light, and deception being equated with darkness. And so if we are going to identify with God as our Heavenly Father, if we're going to claim that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, it means we're going to share His same values and His priorities. 
And if truth is a big deal to God, then that means it should be a big deal to me. If my expectation is to draw closer to him in the light, that means that deception, in any form of deception, is in the past. Now, it's easy to say, well, of course. I mean, that's no, no surprise. You're not saying anything new. And of course, this is, obviously, this isn't anything brand new. But how it fleshes out and plays out in society, and in our worlds particularly, has a particular bearing. And so here's the what. What are the things that we are supposed to be concerned about from John? And this is, these are the specific things that John was talking about. The first one is, do not be deceptive. Do not be deceptive. Going back to the verse that I just read, 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then later in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We, whether we realize it or not, if we do not practice the truth that we claim to believe, we are actually engaging in deception. It's easy to say, yes, I believe Jesus. I have given my life to Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. But if our behavior does not live up to that declaration. It is a form of deception. Last week, uh, Pastor talked about these, these verses, that when we engage in sin, it breaks fellowship with God. And that is one of, of uh, John's key emphasis in this, these, uh, these verses, is that sin affects our relationship, but also... Sinful behavior on an ongoing basis gives a false impression. It perpetrates a lie. There are a couple of other passages that correspond to this. Uh, and this supports, number one, we are disciples. A few weeks back, uh, Peter went through uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But what he did is he called his disciples to go and make disciples and a disciple is one who, in general, in secular terms, was one who followed a master, embraced the master's teaching, reflected those teachings, and then went and, uh, based on living out and declaration, went ahead and uh, continued those teachings, perpetrated those, uh, propagated those teachings. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the expectation was that we who are disciples are to embrace everything that our master teacher has said and emulate it so that the world sees. And then we are to go and make those who are doing the same. When we don't do that, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but I'm living in a way that is contrary to his teaching, I'm sending out a false message. Because the world is looking, whether we like it or not, the world is looking. And if I claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I'm acting in a way that is contrary to Jesus Christ. I'm sending a false message. And in effect, I'm lying. Second reference, we are priests. 1 Peter 2 is verse 9, but also uh, earlier in verse 5. And this is quoting Exodus 19, but uh, Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. And a primary responsibility of priest was to reflect the holiness of God. When people looked at the Jewish priests, they were supposed to be able to see a human illustration of God in his righteousness and purity. And the assignment for God's people as a whole are that we 
have this expectation, this responsibility to not only see and recognize God's nature and his purity and his light, but to reflect that to the whole world. So that when the world looks at us as God's people, me as an individual follower of Christ, they get an accurate, true reflection of who God is and what he's really like. And when we live in sinful patterns, when we continue in sinful behavior, not only does it hinder our relationship with God, it sends a deception, a lie out to the world. A couple of case in points. News media has been filled in recent days, months, and even years of clergy who have been guilty of preying upon innocent children, teenagers, pre-adolescents. Obviously, that is horrific. As a chaplain for police officers, I hear all too often cases where adults have abused children. And it is traumatic for first responders to deal with that kind of situation. But that horror, that travesty, is magnified exponentially when it is a member of the clergy who is guilty of doing one of the biggest obstacles I have faced in working with law enforcement is the title of clergy, because so often law, law enforcement are dealing with clergy who have sexually abused or have absconded funds and uh, have been found guilty of, of uh, dipping into the till. And all too often, their image of clergy is tainted by this example of clergy who have violated the law. That's not an accurate reflection of God. That is, in fact, by saying, I reflect God, but if I engage in this kind of activity, I'm lying. I mean, I may belong to God, but if I say I love God, but I'm praying on innocent people, that's a lie. I don't love God, because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So to say I love God and to do something that is diametrically opposed to his kingdom objectives, that's a lie. And it sends a deceptive message to the world because the world looks and says this is what God is like. But it doesn't have to be that dramatic. In a former life, I was a youth pastor. Now, Obviously, from the color of my hair, that was a long time ago. But as a youth pastor and then as a pastor, I consistently received this kind of pressure from parents saying, okay, your job as pastor is to take my children and help them become the people of God they're supposed to, do, they're supposed to be, not realizing that God has placed that responsibility on the parents to do it. But what I saw all too often was parents coming from homes where, I mean, children coming from homes where the parents claimed to be followers of Christ, but their lifestyle did not demonstrate it. Now, I'm about to step on some toes, but please understand that my toes have been smashed in this regard already. Losing temper and rage is a violation of God's instructions. And so, as a parent, if I cloud up and rain all over my children in rage, that is not reflecting a God of patience and mercy and grace. If I, as a parent, am driving down the highway and somebody cuts me off and I say, what the blankety blank, who do you blankety think you, I'll show you and rip over and go over and cut them off, that's a false message to our children. It's very humbling and embarrassing when your teenage son 
says to you, Dad, no, don't do that. Yes, I've had that. We have a responsibility to not just declare the reality of who Jesus is, but reflect the reality of the light in our behavior. Because when we say we love God, and when we say we are walking in fellowship with God, but we do something that is the exact opposite. Back when everybody used to have phones, the kid picks up the phone, it rings, and say, it's for you, Dad. Tell him I'm not here. Well, the government gets enough of my money, so I don't have to pay all of my taxes, so I can rearrange and do some creative bookkeeping so that I don't, and they'll never know. That kind of behavior sends a false message to our children, and it's no surprise if children say, yeah, I saw both sides of it, and I don't care for it. I don't want to have anything to do with that. So as followers of Christ, we have a responsibility of not being deceptive. Our behavior as disciples, as a royal priesthood, we are called to be or live lives that reflect accurately the character of God and the teachings of God. So do not be deceptive, but second... Do not be deceived by false teaching. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you have it, but uh, uh, it's up on the screen. In uh, chapter 2, verses 18 25, John says this. Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have, have knowledge. I write to you not because you know the truth, but because you... Not, I'm sorry, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because the lie is a truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He to, who denies the Father... And the Son. No one who denies the Father, I'm sorry, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever conf confesses the Son has the Father also. And what, we don't have this uh, up there, but in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. <coughs> Excuse me. In, <clears throat> in the church in the first century, there was this movement uh, of heretical teaching that suggested that either Jesus was not fully God, deity, or that he became uh, deity after his baptism, and then the Spirit descended from him uh, at the crucifixion. And uh, these were popular notions, and that's the danger that uh, is influencing and prompting John to write these letters. You see the word the Antichrist, and you know in some versions it's capital A, and we can get this, this feeling of, oh no, the Antichrist, Revelation, and Peter's going to be talking about Revelation in a few weeks, and, and oh no, the end's coming, and the Antichrist is to take control. There's not as much alarm about the Antichrist, capital A. And that's been going on for years. I remember as a kid, movies that came out, I didn't uh, see all of them, but Rosemary's Baby and The Omen, and there was this big focus on the Antichrist. And I remember, uh, as a young person, uh, a lot of people saying that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist, and uh, that did not turn out to be. In fact, uh, so many, Hitler was supposed to be, and Joseph Stalin, and, and I think a lot of time and energy and effort is wasted on trying to identify the quote-unquote Antichrist. When that happens, there won't be any uh, debate. But the greater concern is Antichrist with a lowercase a. And that is those who teach false doctrine about who Jesus is. <clears throat> we don't have a strain running amongst us these days that suggests 
Jesus was pure flesh until his baptism, and then the Spirit descended on him, baptism was with him for three years, and then descended. That's not among us. But there's plenty of challenge to that critical doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. There's no shortage of strains out there that are saying either Jesus was just a good man and a religious leader, or he was some form of deity, but he wasn't God in the flesh. That's the kind of doctrine that John is warning about that applies to us today. Don't be deceived. It is offensive to make a statement that Jesus is the only way to God. You say that in the marketplace these days, and you're likely to get some kind of rebuke uh, and possibly even a tongue lashing. Because that is not a popular notion. The danger is when that creeps into religious circles. And when John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, which one of the religions teaches. It is critically important to remember that Jesus was not merely a man, a human teacher. He was God in the flesh. One of my favorite, I take that back, my favorite author is C.S. Lewis. Any C.S. Lewis fans? A few. Any Chronicles of Narnia fans? Okay. And most people recognize C.S. Lewis from the, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe movie, and, and Prince Caspian movie, and, and so forth. Uh, but there's a, a much larger following for the Chronicles of Narnia. But C.S. Lewis is known for a lot more than just the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm a Narnianite. I'm a, I, yes, I am. Uh, I have posters and, and, and displays. Uh, some would say I have an altar to C.S. Lewis set up in my office. <clears throat> I don't really, but some would say that. And some of his writings are so much more insightful and powerful than Chronicles of Narnia. Screwtape Letters is a classic. One of the most impactful essays I've ever written, uh, read uh, was uh, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. It changed my whole perspective on how we treat people. Probably the most impactful book that he ever wrote was Mere Christianity. And this quote comes from it. I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready, they're saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teaching, teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to do so. John was very clear in the gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus in his dialogue with the Pharisees really drove them crazy when he said at the end of that chapter, before Abraham was, I am. And he's using the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew that was used at the burning bush when uh, God revealed himself to Moses as I am. And there are three other times in the book of John, in a few weeks, the pastor is going to be going through the I am statements, but there are three times where Jesus made that bold, emphatic statement with the woman at the well. 
She said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He says, the one with whom you speak, I am. And when he was walking on the water and the disciples saw him, he said, fear not, I am. And in the garden when they came and he said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus, he said, I am. And they fell on their faces. Jesus claimed to be God. Anything less than that is a deception. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And any teaching that crosses that line is under this spirit of Antichrist. So don't be deceived about who Jesus is. But also these uh, false uh, teachers, these false prophets, <clears throat> were giving false teaching about sin and godliness. In chapter 3, verse 7 through 8, it said, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sending from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It was, they were saying one thing about Jesus uh, affecting his deity. They were saying another thing about behavior that you can, because flesh is sinful, you can do whatever you want and it doesn't really matter. That's a false doctrine. As the pastor pointed out last week, it is a big deal. How we live, it does affect our relationship with God. And if we're going to cling to truth, if we are going to effectively deal with deception, it means recognizing disobedience for what it is. It's easy to say, oh, it's no big deal. As my friend told me, well, it's not really a lie. Well, yes, it is a lie. It's no big deal if I look at this website. Yeah, it's, uh, look at the culture that we're in. Yeah, look at the, it, it's really no big deal. Uh, I've had people come to me and say, well, you know, God wants me to be happy. I, I'm, I really had this as a pastor. God really wants me to be happy, and he knows he's, I'm not happy with my husband, so uh, he told me it's okay for me to have this affair. That kind of conclusion comes from gradual steps of deception. And when we are tempted to let that barrier down a little bit and to just dip our toe into that pool of unrighteousness. John's warning needs to come racing to our heads. Don't be deceived. Don't think that it's okay. Anybody as old as I remember Lost in Space? The robot? I'm talking about the old version. I'm not talking about the new one. Warning, warning. We, whenever there is the slightest inclination to cross that line and dip our toe into the pool of unrighteousness, we should have the robots, warning, warning, and don't go there because it is a lie straight from the pit of hell. So, now we understand why this is something we need to deal with. Here's the what of the things that we're supposed to be addressing. God has given us a how. And it's found in uh, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 2. And let's read it. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The next one. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But as His anointing teaches you about everything that is true and is no lie, just as God has taught you, abide in Him. There are two words, and these aren't the blanks that you fill in. I'll give you the blanks in a moment. The two words that are repeated in here that are key for us to understand, one is abide and the other is anointing. God has provided a means for us to avoid and prepare ourselves so that we are not deceptive and we are not deceived. And it involves this abiding and this anointing. One of my favorite Bible scholars and commentators is uh, I. Howard Marshall. And his take on this particular passage is that this is a twofold reference, going back to the Gospel of John. That one, the anointing involves the Word of God. And second, the anointing involves or provides the Holy Spirit of God. Again, John, in this, so much of what's in 1 John goes back to the Gospel of John. But Jesus, talking about the Word now, Jesus said in chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments. There is a consistent theme in Jesus uh, words there in the upper room just before he's uh, betrayed and handed over. Abiding and obeying his commandments and abiding in his words. This is God's provision for us. This is what he has given. He has anointed us with his word to serve as that sanctified filter, if you will, that grid so that as things are coming our way, we say, okay, wait a second, what does God's Word say? Uh, you know, I'm tempted to blow up right now, uh, but God in Galatians chapter 5 identifies rage and anger and wrath as the fruit of the flesh, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness is the fruit of the Spirit. So maybe it's not okay for me to, to scream at my coworkers. God's Word is that divine filter that helps us to know. And so there's the call to abide in His Word. But there's also the abiding in the Holy Spirit. Later on in chapter 15 of, of John, he says, When the Helper comes, who I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness. And then later on in chapter 16, he says, I did not say these things from the beginning. Uh, verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me, and I will send you in verse 7, the helper, the Holy Spirit. God has provided not only his word, but the whole, his Holy Spirit to guide us in his word. And this context is an essential component of the presence of God's Holy Spirit and the proclamation and declaration of his word. But it's not just church. If you were to reflect on, on Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, there is this walk in step with the Holy Spirit. If we walk with the Spirit, if we keep in step, there is this ongoing daily abiding. And I'll be honest with you. If I am not regularly, if I am not daily being in God's Word, it's so much more difficult to filter out the deception from the world. Being in God's Word is so essential for us to abide. It's how we abide with the Father and the Son. And it is the means through which the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. And so the how we protect ourselves against the deception is by fully appropriating, receiving, taking 
advantage of the anointing, the abiding that he provides in his word and in the Holy Spirit. Before we wrap up, just a couple of rules of thumb, heads up. Here's some things that I utilize when I'm trying to discern truth from uh, error, uh, lies from deception. I mean, uh, truth from deception and lies. First, if human experience or human reasoning gets more attention than Christ and his word, beware. It's easy to get caught up in what a person has, a, a popular uh, celebrity who claims to be a follower of Christ, when they have experienced something and they get all excited about that experience, it's dangerous to place high levels of confidence in a person's experience because a person can be deceived. We're all subject to that. Or reasoning, rationale. I've heard over the course of years all of these, uh, these unfolding uh, theories and philosophies that kind of flow out of, of Scripture, but it eventually leads to deception. So if you hear someone talking more about their personal experience or a line of reasoning and philosophy than in their focus on Jesus and His Word, warning, warning, the red light should go off and you should beware. Secondly, if a book, an author, or a particular religious leader or church pastor gets more attention than Christ and His Word, beware. I don't know if your pastor Peter is going to uh, watch this sermon or not. If, so, hi. <laughs> One of the things I appreciate him so much is that he downplays the significance of his role. We all know his role is not insignificant. I was with him at a, uh, at a uh, coffee shop the other day, and he says, yeah, I'm on staff over at Calvary Church. And I said, <laughs> you're not on... You're the lead pastor. He says, no. I love that about him. And this is not something that I worry about in this church for that reason. But if you associate a church or a religious teaching more with the persona, the celebrity status of the individual, the books that he's written, or a particular book that promises if you follow this prayer strategy or this theory or, or, or this formula, then you're going to be blessed beyond your wildest dreams. Beware. God did not provide authors and pastors and celebrity uh, leaders to be the primary filter for deception. God provided his word and the Holy Spirit and what makes the difference is if the pastor is deflecting attention away from himself and to the word and to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, be careful. So, this is the time for doing some introspection. Yeah, this, this is not an easy sermon for me to preach. It's the first time I preached it. Frankly, I don't really care for it. I, I'm not real crazy about you know, some of the stuff that's in it. Because this doesn't come naturally. This isn't easy. This is something that we all have to work at. And so my encouragement for us this week is take these verses that are listed in the bulletin, go through and review them. And as you're going through these passages, say, Father... Help me to see areas where maybe I've been a little deceptive, maybe even unintentionally, but I've not accurately represented and reflected your character and your commands. Open my eyes, help me to see what I need to adjust so that I am an, an accurate, uh, a true disciple who accurately reflects you. I am a, a true priest. And again, the Bible says we're all a, the, part of the royal priesthood. So I am part of that royal priesthood who accurately reflects the holiness of God in my speech, 
in my behavior, in my online searches. Ask the Lord to show us. Ask the Lord to help us utilize His provision abiding in His Word and the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord to help us be as Calvary, a church that accurately reflects and projects the glorious light of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And none of us in this room can say that, uh, absolutely. But I, I would venture to suggest and hold that everybody in this room would really like to do that. So Father, by your power through your Holy Spirit, and because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, with all of these in mind, Father, do that miraculous work in our hearts so that we are not deceptive in our behavior and our speech, and we are not deceived by those attempts from the enemy to twist our thinking. And Father, in the meantime, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love and your patience with us as we try to get this all worked out. We ask all this in Jesus' name.